Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. He's perhaps the only candidate who needs no introduction in this race. When he ran for president in 1987, he ran as the candidate of a new generation. In 2020, he's the candidate of restoration. Former Vice President Joe Biden joins us on Close Up this morning. Happy Thanks to be here, Mr. Yeah, Vice thank President. You. I appreciate it. So, we're just about two weeks away from the first yep. in the nation primary. Your campaign has said that there's no single state that's a must win, but you're the man in the arena and you've been competing as either the front runner or the co-front runner this whole time. So do you believe that New Hampshire is a must win for you? No, but I think I can win New Hampshire. I think I will win New Hampshire. But look, I think you gotta look at the first four all at once, both two caucuses as well as the two primaries. And, uh, and I think that's gonna, who comes out of uh, South Carolina at the end of the four, I think, and is going to be the, uh, you know, actually in real contention to get the whole nomination. Hmm. This fight with Bernie Sanders over Social Security, you've said that he, quote, doctored video of you from the Senate back in the day talking about Social Security, but you did argue that uh, cost of living adjustments as part of a general spending freeze were necessary uh, to cut federal spending and reduce the deficit. Uh, that aside, that was even, 20 years ago. You know, even if Sanders is playing a little rough here and your position has changed, what about those Democratic voters who say... Hadn't changed. Well, what about those Democratic voters who say that Bernie's been consistent this whole time? Well, he, well, he hasn't been, but I'm not going to attack Bernie. He has been... A, he hadn't even been consistent on Social Security. But here's the deal. I laid out clearly what my plan for Social Security is. I'm going to increase Social Security benefits. I'm going to raise taxes for people making over $400,000 so they pay the same tax on every dollar you pay at your salary or at $100,000 or $50,000 or $40,000. That will, in fact, allow us to get those folks who are outliving their Social Security in terms of benefits, be able them to increase their benefits, those families where a spouse dies and the so total Social Security goes down, increase their benefits and make it solvent for that child of yours I met. So when you say your position hasn't changed, you were advocating for COLA freezes then, but you don't think they should happen now? No, I don't think they should. And that was in the context of a gigantic piece of legislation relating to what we're in a gigantic deficit at the moment. And it wasn't to totally freeze, it was to freeze for that one year. And, and if we had done everything else, we froze across the board, including the military. Speaking of the deficit, how do you pay for all of this stuff? You know, this is a big wide open question, but how do you do all these things you want to do and not somehow make the deficit infinitely worse? Well, because you're going to significantly cut their analysis done of my proposal, how I pay for everything from a, a, additional aid education to global warming to the whole range of issues. And the way I do it is I eliminate a significant number of the tax cuts the President of the United States put in there. And an analysis showed that vast majority of my tax cuts, over $3 trillion of cutting his taxes, in fact, uh, are relate to the just top 1%. I'm not trying to punish anybody, but for example, there's no reason why you should be pay or your the secretary working here should be paying the tax rate lower than someone making 25 million bucks on Wall Street. They should pay the, at the tax rate that they in fact are taxed at. We should raise that tax rate to almost 40 percent, and capital gains should be paid at that rate. If you're at a 20 percent rate, you pay at 20 percent. So we fundamentally change the tax code to make it fair, which I've been fighting for my whole career. 
Let's talk about the impeachment trial. You said you don't want to testify, even if some kind of deal is cut between the Democrats and Republicans about allowing witnesses in. You said that you've been smeared viciously in this whole thing. So why not get in there, back on your home court there of the Senate, and make your case in front of the largest audience possible? My case has already been made. There's not a single solitary person in this administration who said I did anything other than my job. Not anybody in the United States of America that has been involved at all. Not anybody abroad. I did my job and I did it really well. The problem is here, this is all about Trump's ability to try to take us the focus off. I did my job. All the administration witnesses under oath said I did my job. The question is, did he do his job? And it seems pretty clear on the face of it, he didn't do his job. So I'm not going to let him play this game that, in fact, let's try to divert attention from what I, Donald Trump, did. There's no, keep it, if you have anything to contribute, that can give light to whether or not Donald Trump violated the Constitution, tried to bribe with, in terms of aid to another country to get political uh, um, help against some, someone who doesn't want to run against me. I mean, any kind of interest in you find it that, that they've already spent $12 million in negative ads against me that your station and others won't even run because they know their lies? What about that Council on Foreign Relations video where you're bragging about getting this prosecutor, Victor Shokin, fired? If average Joe, and not Joe Biden, is watching that, how do they tell the difference between that kind of pressure that you exerted and the pressure that the president exerted? Because I was exerting the pressure of the United States government, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the European Union, and all of our allies, all of them, because the guy was corrupt. And I was the one who went to their parliament and said, it's time for you to stand up and stop the corruption. You have a chance to break out of this now. That's what that was about. And I made no bones about it. He had to leave. And every major European figure said he had to leave as well. Who's your first phone call? You get into the White House. You're going to call a foreign leader. You're going to try to, as you said, try to pick up the pieces of U.S. foreign policy. Who are you calling calling first? our NATO allies right off the bat. And the reason is to say, look, we're back. You, you can count us on us again. We're not going to treat NATO like a protection racket. I'd be on the phone with the Japanese as well as the South Koreans and the Australians and saying, look, we believe we have a responsibility as part of our alliance with you as well. And so letting and make it clear that we are not going to coddle dictators any longer. We are going to, in fact, stand for who we are. We're going to stand for human rights and we're going to keep our commitments that we made in the international treaties with in NATO and other treaties. Iran has said the Iran deal is dead. You're not getting it back, most likely. So what's the next step then if you can't bring them back to the table based on what's already happened? Well, the next step is to make sure that we, in fact, bring our allies back into the deal. We're, we're isolated now. Trump's notion of America first is put America alone. You had for a while there the three, you had China, Russia and Iran patrolling, doing a patrol in the Persian Gulf. You have our European allies making a moral equivalence between us and Iran by saying, you both should stand down. We have to get back to where we were before. We organize the rest of the world to say, Iran, you're not going to get a nuclear weapon period, and Iran, we are here, all of us standing together. That has been broken. It has to be put back together. You know, you talk a lot about restoring norms and things like that. What's your read on what the president said about the attack on the base in Iraq uh, that left American troops injured? Initially, we were hearing that nothing happened, and now we've heard that there have been some injuries. We heard today 34 have traumatic brain injury, and this guy said they're just suffering from headaches. What's he doing? He either doesn't know anything or he's misleading.
You know, we have over 300,000 people coming home from these wars with traumatic brain injury, or excuse me, with post-traumatic stress as a consequence of traumatic brain injury. Look, this is, this, is, this is devastating for the United States. And the fact that, is this the same guy we find out, the President of the United States, the same guy who referred to the members of the flag officers and generals as babies and so I mean, come on, this is ridiculous. And the whole world's listening. The whole world sees this, and I wonder, my Lord, what is this guy doing? Part of winning the White House is holding on to it. Uh, if you're serving one term, you're going to be in your early 80s by the time that's done. What assurances can you give to New Hampshire voters that you are going to be there for a two-term presidency? I can, what, what assurance you're going to be able to be here three months from now, you don't get cancer, God forbid, and something happened to you? You can't make any insurance. I'm in good health. The insurance is I will, I will make sure my physical records are constantly made available. But here's the real issue. The real issue is not just beating Trump. It's who can, in fact, help Democrats win up and down the line. Who is the best person to help Democrat win the Senate seat in North Carolina, in Georgia, in Mississippi, excuse me, in, in Pennsylvania, in Michigan? That's one of the questions. We've got to produce a Democratic Senate. We can do that with the right candidate at the top and maintain a Democratic House. Absent that, all these plans that are so, you know, so significant we all have, it's going to be really hard to pass them. We have to unite the country, and we have to reestablish our place in the world. Running mate's going to be very important, too. Uh, and it's certainly in this... <laughs> well, I've got a job right now that I kind of like, but I appreciate that. But in this primary, there's been a lot of tough conversations and important conversations about diversity. And now that the top tier of this field is all white, a lot of Democrats are disappointed with that. So you've said that you would prefer to have a woman or a person of color as your running mate. Why not confirm or pledge that you will have a woman of color running as vice president? It would be presumptuous of me to do that because I'm not even the nominee yet, number one. And number two, whomever, if I'm fortunate enough to be the nominee, whoever I pick is going to have to have a relationship with me that I have with Barack. You're going to have to know that I can completely trust them, that we're on the same page on all the major issues, and that I can delegate significant responsibility to them at a presidential level where they can do it top to bottom like the president did with me. This job is too big for just one man or woman. You have to have somebody with you as a partner, and they can be honest and good and decent, but if they don't agree with you, then it's hard to delegate. Another important conversation in this primary has been the role of the early states. Uh, and you've been through this process quite a bit, uh, but we want to get you on record on this because there's been a lot of challenges to the idea of New Hampshire and Iowa going first. So whether you're the nominee or not, at the Democratic Convention, will you support New Hampshire's continued first in the nation? You guys been really good at bribery, man. I tell you what. <laughs> yes, this is the quid pro quo that I'm asking you for right now. I, I don't have any pro quid or pro with you. But here's the deal. Look, I think that it makes sense to have early primary in a small state. And I think it makes sense to have a, a caucus in a small state. The reason why I'd be willing to continue to support it is you all take it very seriously. You don't just look at what happens in your state. You look at who's the best person to go on and help in other states. You, because I, and I find, believe it or not, Iowa caucus is the same thing. Very little diversity. But when you have Nevada and you have South Carolina following on with overwhelming diversity, which I have overwhelming support for those communities. In fact, it is consistent with looking at it as a whole, all within those first four weeks or so. And uh, so I, I, have, I have no problem with the fact that it stays, but I think you have to have small states at the front end, and I think you have to have diversity as well. All right, Mr. Vice President, Thank thanks you. for joining us on Close Thank Up. You. We appreciate your time.
Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's U Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join U Local. See you there. Senators running for president have to get creative to keep a foot on the 2020 campaign trail as they hear the impeachment trial in Washington. Amy Klobuchar stopped by our Hearst Bureau last week to talk with us about the need to hear from witnesses as the Senate decides President Trump's fate. Senator, your campaign is getting hot at just the right time here in New Hampshire, which makes the impeachment trial that much more difficult for you. Uh, certainly of all of the candidates, you're trying to break into that top tier, and perhaps that makes getting stuck in Washington even more problematic. So how do you survive this? I first survive it by knowing that our democracy has to survive, and that means going forward with this impeachment proceeding, not putting the witnesses, you know, in the deep freeze and not allowing them to testify. This has really bothered me as a U.S. Senator, and it should bother the people of New Hampshire who have been there from the beginning in our democracy. you got to have a fair process, and no witnesses means no process. And for me, uh, it's my duty. And I am so proud to have so many incredible supporters in New Hampshire, um, people like uh, Joe Foster, the former uh, attorney general and people like Ambassador Smith that, saw, that uh, New Hampshire was so proud to send to uh, become our ambassador to Saudi Arabia uh, to a um, number of uh, legislators and uh, including our uh, recent endorsements um, of some of the House leaders and people like Deborah Pignatelli. Um, it's a moment in time where you've got to believe in politics the New Hampshire way and to me that means house parties it means people meeting me coming on board as you know we had hundreds and hundreds of people even on new year's eve in Keene at five o'clock we had over 500 people um, at a town hall meeting and so i believe in these early states uh, because the early states uh, give an opportunity for candidates like me who have this strong track record of winning uh, in red and purple districts and a strong track record of passing bills and getting things done, but maybe aren't as well known. And you think about what New Hampshire has given our country. Many, many winning presidents, including uh, Bill Clinton and including uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, including um, um, the strength that Barack Obama showed in the state. Um, it's really something. And um, so that's what I'm hoping is going to carry me through because um, New Hampshire listens, the fact that we're gaining, the fact that we've got these endorsers on the ground and such a great operation makes a difference. And then finally, my views. My views are very consistent uh, with the U.S. senators uh, from New Hampshire, uh, Senator Shaheen and Senator Hassan. Um, you can look at our voting records. I think uh, we are all senators that believe in having people's back and getting things done. Um, and so that's what I bring to the people of New Hampshire. You've been trying to win over former Trump voters here in the Granite State. Doesn't the endorsement of the New York Times, that stamp of approval from the elite of the elite, doesn't that kind of undercut <laughs> you with that group of people? Uh, no. Um, I think that uh, they actually endorsed two people, and they were very clear. They endorsed my colleague Elizabeth Warren um, 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 from 
uh, um, for very different reasons than they endorsed me. They endorsed me acknowledging uh, that I was the standard bearer and the uh, one that best uh, could lead uh, from the middle of our party, and I would say from the middle of the country. I live in the middle of the country, but I'm someone that's always believed in bringing people together instead of shutting them out. From the moment I endorsed in that blizzard in the middle of the Mississippi River with four inches of snow on my head just to impress the people of New Hampshire, uh, I've been very clear that I think we need to cross the river of our divides to get to a higher plane in our politics. And that's why I come at this with such a sense of urgency, uh, with a 100-day plan, which with 137 things that we can get done without Congress that are legal, uh, with work on infrastructure. When you look at the need for the commuter rail uh, to New Hampshire and you look at some of the effects of climate change and how we cannot wait more than a day after I get into office uh, before tackling that. Uh, Long-term care, I'm the only candidate to really focus on the debate stage and in my plans on long-term care and mental health and some of the things that we know are tough um, in our cities but also in our rural areas. And then finally, as you mentioned, remember being in uh, uh, northern New Hampshire, which reminds me very much of northern Minnesota, uh, and having a voter uh, standing in line, and he was among many voters with stickers that said, you know, I'm a climate change voter. They would say, I'm a Supreme Court voter. I'm a reproductive rights voter. And here's this guy with a brown jacket and no sticker. He leans over and he says, uh, I say, sir, you don't have a sticker. And he says, that's because I was a Trump voter. And these are my neighbors and they don't know. But I'm not doing it again. Um, there are people out there that stayed home in 2016. There are people that voted for other candidates. And I think it's really important if we want to win big and get all these things done that we know are just sitting there waiting for the work of a president that's actually going to get up every morning, not to send a mean tweet, but to get things done for people. And we can only do this if we win big. And that, of course, means uh, Senator Shaheen's race and sending that incredible leader back to the U.S. Senate. Uh, but it also means reaching out to people, making sure that we not just win in New Hampshire, but win across the country. And I'm the one to do that. Your record of getting things done in the Senate is clear. But if you're the nominee, President Trump is very likely going to try and attack you as part of the swamp. He'll lump you in with that group of people. We hear from some people who are more attracted to Pete Buttigieg as a candidate saying, we like Pete because there's no surface area there. He can't be attacked as a part of Washington. So how will you counter as the nominee that attack that you're just part of the swamp? Well, I think it's naive to think that they're not going to attack any candidate. They're going to attack every single candidate. Um, and I think what you want is someone that can look at Donald Trump and say, you know what? the middle of the country. It's not flyover country to me. I live there. And I am someone uh, that uh, can show that I can get things done across the aisle. And I have a lot of respect for Mayor Pete. I've said that very clearly. Um, but I think having someone that's been able to actually win uh, and win in red and purple districts is going to be so important. I've done it over and over and over again. I bring the receipts to this election, not just the talking points. Um, and I also think having someone uh, that uh, has shown that she can get things done in Washington, passing over a hundred bills. I think that matters. And we've had that debate on the de debate stage. I know that debate will continue into New Hampshire. Um, but I think I have the strongest case of bringing this ticket to victory.
We want to get you on record with one last quick question here. You had a pretty good taste of New Hampshire politics in the primary now. Can New Hampshire count on you at the convention this year to support its continued first-in-the-nation voting status? Um, uh, yes, um, I am a big fan of the uh, four states going early, and of course that includes uh, Nevada and South Carolina and Iowa as well. Um, and I think having these smaller states, it's so obvious right now. You've got two billionaires running, including one guy that's going to take out a Super Bowl ad. Uh, you have got uh, senators that are um, doing their constitutional duty, three of us, uh, in this, four of us, in this very important hearing uh, in the Senate. And if it was just all about ads and if you had the most money, um, I don't think you get the best candidate. The virtue of New Hampshire being first in the four early states uh, is that you have states where people, and they're very different, the four states, uh, demographically, but you have states where people actually get to know you. They demand answers to their questions. They show up at town hall meetings. I think that should matter in a democracy. And you just watch what's going to happen here. Uh, because my guess is the candidate, and I think it's going to be me, that emerges at the end of all this is going to be very different than the one that's spending the most money on ads um, or the ones that have the biggest name identification or, you know, seems the coolest um, um, from the get-go. I think it's going to be someone that unites people, that people think can win. All right, Senator Klobuchar, thank you for your time. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. Up a lot to discuss this week with just about two weeks to go until the primary. And here to break it all down, John DeStaso, WMUR political reporter. Thanks for being here. Uh, so the Joe Biden interview we just had, interesting that we heard him say he doesn't have to win here. He says he can win, he could win, but he's not going to set expectations that high. That's right. Uh, good politician. Uh, probably being honest, set, set expectations low, and then you meet expectations if things don't go your way. And obviously, if you do better than the expectations you're setting. I think the expectations for Joe Biden are quite high, actually. Now, does he have to win here? Uh, probably not, given the fact that there are two neighbors in the race. But at the same time, if he beats even one of them uh, and finishes second or third, uh, that can be spun into a, and accurately so, into a major uh, boost for him, a major thrust of momentum going forward into the states that he feels he really can win. Yeah, one of the most unique aspects of this primary regarding Joe Biden, you go to his events, it's not uh, a huge crowd. And yet you see the polls, he's still strong there, but you go to the events and it's a pretty average crowd. So it'll be interesting to see what translate, what translates and what comes through there in the end. One politician we know who always draws a big crowd, President Donald Trump. <laughs> and as you've reported first, he's going to be here on primary eve. A big night becomes epic. Absolutely. What a day and night that's going to be, and a weekend for that matter. I mean, you're going to have the debate, which you are in. We're going to have a, a major Democratic event. And then on that Monday, President Trump is going to be at the uh, SNHU arena with thousands of his supporters and many more either on his side or protesting him on Elm Street. It's going to be unlike anything I think that I've ever seen on primary eve because he is now the sitting president. Primary eve four years ago, he was still a candidate. Now he's the president and lots, a lot of water has gone under the bridge in the last four years, so he'll have a lot to talk about. Will he attack any specific Democrat? Will he just go after the field? Uh, is he looking to 
get independence to pick up Republican ballots for him? Uh, is he looking toward the general election? Mainly, I think he's just here to kind of put it into the face, if you will, of the Democrats. Right, and you got to figure that um, the message is sent no matter what, that no matter how big you think your election night party is going to be as the winner of the New Hampshire primary, Correct. he's going to have something bigger going on the night before. So that's, there's an implicit message there for sure. Let's talk about those undecided voters. Uh, we see in the polling, uh, the number is high, uh, as it always is. But mm -hmm. this is going to be a, a down-to-the-wire race, and we've heard from a lot of people who say they're going to make up their mind as they head into the booth. Yeah, I think that's... a. Certainly true. It's always been true in New Hampshire that we have that we have late deciders, especially in primaries. I was looking up some, doing a little research on this. Even in in years when uh, one candidate or another seemed to have a, a big lead, uh, there were many people who hadn't made up their minds until the very end. Uh, you could have half the voters not really decided because they like them just about all of them. I think the voters, uh, the Democratic voters. Uh, really, there's no, there's very few neg people who are, are negative or get negative, unfavorable ratings, and so which one is going to be the one to take on the president? Maybe if the president attacks a certain candidate on primary eve, that would actually help that candidate. Yeah, this hasn't been a race of sharp contrasts, uh, and certainly, so maybe that's contributing. But uh, last question here: Iowa is going to send a signal, and that's going to set a lot in motion here, isn't it? I think so. I think that this time it, it will because of the uncertainty and the fluidity of the race. Don't forget, though, there's eight days in between, and that could and a lot of things can happen in those eight days. We'll be here for it. All right, John, thanks so much for your insight. Thank you. Adam. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.